welcome everyone to tonight's Points of View lecture. I am Carrie Geyser Casey for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, and this is a beautiful April 30th, 2014. The Center for Dance Education produces many programs, like this one. They also do the Meet the Artist interviews, the Talk About Ballet lecture series, the Dance in Schools and Communities program, and also the Ballet 101 Introduction to Ballet uh, course, which takes place in January. And we record these points of view lectures for podcasts, and you may go to sfballet.org to find past recordings. One more little bit of housekeeping as a reminder, at the end of our lecture tonight, if you could please exit the way that you came in, that is to say, over on the right. Um, if you are staying for the performance tonight, please have your tickets out and ready, as they will be rechecked in the lobby. Thank you. I am very delighted to be here with three extremely talented choreographers. Um, I feel very fortunate that we have such three amazingly talented individuals up here all at the same time. And I'm very pleased to introduce each one of them to you now. Val Canaparoli is a prolific choreographer whose home base is San Francisco, where he first began studying ballet on a Ford Foundation scholarship. I won't say which decade. Uh, and Obviously, I'm the youngest one up here, right? <laughs> uh, and he currently performs as principal character artist here at San Francisco Ballet. Val has created over uh, created ballets that are currently in, in the repertoires of 45 ballet companies nation at, worldwide, I believe. Um, his ballet, Tears, let's see here, premiered earlier this season with music by minimalist composer Steve Reich. Next season, we will be treated to his ballet, Lombarena, uh, which won a Chu Sango Award and is also in the repertoire of 19 ballet companies. He created it on San Francisco Ballet in 1994. Val has been resident choreographer at Ballet West and Tulsa Ballet and the recipient of numerous awards and grants, including from the National Endowment for the Arts. So, welcome Val. Oh, well, yes, we'll clap for that. Everyone gets applause. Liam Scarlett is one of the most promising new choreographers of his generation. After a career with the Royal Ballet at the rank of first artist, in 2012, he accepted the position of artist in residence at Royal Ballet in order to focus his energies more completely on choreography. And this was a post that was created especially for him. Liam began choreographing at age 11 and has already created 19 ballets. In 2010, he received a prestigious Olivier nomination for his ballet, Asphodel Meadows, which also received a uh, Critics Circle Award. He has created works for New York City Ballet, English National Ballet, Norwegian National Ballet, The Ballet Boys, Miami City Ballet, and of course, now San Francisco Ballet. He also designs the costumes for many of his productions. Hummingbird, which premiered yesterday to music of Philip Glass, is his first ballet for San Francisco Ballet. So a warm welcome to Liam. <laughs> Miles Thatcher was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he trained at the Herod Conservatory, the Ellison Ballet, and the San Francisco Ballet School. 
started as an apprentice here in 2009, and since 2010 has been in the corps de ballet performing both uh, corps de ballet and soloist roles. His first work, Timepiece, and I'm doing a terrible job of showing these videos. Here's a uh, photograph of Hummingbird. This is his first ballet, Timepiece, which was created in 2009 for the Assemblée Internationale, which is a student choreographer showcase put together by the National Ballet of Canada School. Since then, here at San Francisco Ballet, he has created In the Passerines Clutch for the 2013 uh, opening night gala. Also, Spinet for the San Francisco Ballet trainees in 2012, and Stone and Steel in 2013. And next year, we will be seeing a new work of his in the 2015 repertory season, so very exciting. So a warm welcome to Miles. Now, before we begin our discussion, I wanted to offer just a few words on, <clears throat> a few comments, rather, on the words choreographer and choreography. Today, we call the author of a dance a choreographer. Uh, however, this term choreographer used to signal the author of a dance, one who is presumed to have a unique artistic vision, really did not come to be used until the early 20th century, at least not used in, in that way. Uh, the early 20th century was a time when dance began to assume a status on par with other art forms. Uh, this was partially a result of the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. So if music was to have its composers and the visual arts were to have their artists, then a new word was needed to signal creative work in dance, and that word became choreographer. In the time of Louis XIV, this was the time of the birthplace of ballet, uh, things were very different. The word choreography, from which we get our word choreographer, actually meant three different things. Choreography could mean the act of dancing itself. Choreography could mean the act of learning how to dance, so training. And then finally, choreography meant the act of putting together a dance. So it really was not associated with authorship in the way that it, that it is today. I would conjecture that one reason why the word choreographer as a way to signal authorship did not come into use until the early 20th century is simply because compared to other art forms, the notion of authorship is much more diffuse in choreography. Uh, a painter can work in his or her studio and has complete control over the canvas. Likewise, a writer could conceivably work in his or her, at his or her desk and produce something. Choreographer must work with dancers. These are living, breathing, thinking individuals who have minds of their own. He, also must, he or she also must collaborate with composers, with musicians, with conductors, with scenic designers, with costume designers, with librettists sometimes. But I don't think that this more diffuse authorship or the fact that more individuals are involved in creating the work in any way detracts from the vision or the talent of the choreographer. If anything, it demonstrates the multiple capabilities required of him or her. A choreographer must be extremely well-versed in multiple art forms, not to mention his or her primary language of communication, human movement. So it takes a very rare individual to be a great choreographer. And yet there are no schools that teach choreography, at least not in the ballet idiom. 
And with this in mind, I wanted to begin by asking our guests if you could design the perfect curriculum for a fictional school that taught ballet choreography, uh, what would its components be? What would the classes be? In other words, what are the essential elements that go into creating a choreographer? And Val, I'm going to start with you. Oh, great. Um, I, I think it's, it's, you learn by doing. The more you work, the more you work with the dancers, the more you, you, you gain the, your vocabulary and your style. I don't know if there is definitely a school. I don't know if I could design one. I would give opportunities as much as possible, those dancers, that space, to, to experiment and to work with professional dancers. And it's, it's very difficult to teach. It's, I think you learn by exposure, by doing it. And again, that's what I would do. I'd go, when I first started, it was, and I'm sure with the other, uh, the other choreographers up here, that you learn uh, with students. Or I would go to schools, even after rehearsals, and just whatever I could to work on my craft and, and even uh, work with my colleagues. I know Miles does that a lot. I see him on this side and corner working with some of the dancers. But I don't know, I don't, maybe they can offer a little bit more on this. If there is actually, can you do a school? I think maybe workshops. Uh, I, the ideal would be to have mentors. I always like to offer suggestions to, to young choreographers and uh, leave myself open to that. But I was mentored a lot by, uh, it was very, it was great for me that I had other choreographers to look up to and work with. Thank you. Liam? Um, I think I'll agree with Val. It's not really anything that can be taught as such. I don't think you can, you can put it into a textbook and go through chapter by chapter and by the end of it you've, you've got your diploma or anything. Um, I think the idea of exposure is the most important thing. I am always a big believer that uh, you should learn from what you don't like just as much as what you do like, which I think is why it's important to go and see as many things as possible, different art forms, whatever, whatever's going on. It's, it's sometimes not recognizable to, to oneself what is right with something, but for some reason, when you see something wrong, you know exactly why you don't like it. And I think when you're editing your own work, it's very important to pinpoint those moments and be able to change them immediately and not, not worry about kind of um, having them there and having them as a dead moment, but to be able to see them, recognize them, and then change them. So I think it's, it's just exposure as much as possible, seeing, learning, and doing, and then learning from the mistakes that you make. Because in choreography, mistakes are made, and they have to be made in order for you to develop and snowball on into the next piece. Thank you. Um, and just from my experience so far, um, I've worked with a lot of choreographers from internationally who come um, and set ballets here at San Francisco Ballet. And just like Liam said, I feel like um, I'm able to definitely take what I like and recognize what I would possibly do different um, just by being exposed by being exposed to everyone else's process. And I think it's also really important um, to have studio time and dancers in order to develop your own process and uh, hone your craft, just like Val was saying. So um, the idea of mentorship, uh, where maybe you can have someone challenge you or guide you in a way without 
necessarily trying to impose their own process or their own um, ideas into who you are as an artist. So it's, it's a fine balance, I think, between um, staying open to criticism and critique and also sticking to your own vision. Great. Let's talk a little bit about influences. Um, of becoming a choreographer, George Balanchine, the great 20th century ballet choreographer, stated, you must go through tradition, absorb it, and become in a way a reincarnation of all those artistic periods that have ever come before you. Yikes. Uh, for each one of you, is there a choreographer, an artistic period, or a particular ballet that has had a formative influence on your work? Let's start with Miles this time. Um, I'd have to say that everything that I've danced has really, I, I have to say it's affected, affected how I move organically. If something is organic in my body, um, it, it is somehow processed and reworked into something I create, whether I like that or not. <laughs> but um, so, so I, I, I just have to say every, everything that we do here and um, yeah, I think that's my answer. <laughs> um, I think influences change all the time, which is really good. Um, when you're creating a work, I think the most important thing is, is to be honest with yourself. So as you grow with life experiences, your pieces will change because of the person you are. Um, in terms of my personal influences, being at the Royal Ballet and like here with San Francisco Ballet, there's such a wealth of repertoire that you get choreographers, past and present, come in or new works or old works that maybe are restaged on the company. So there's, there's, a, there's such a richness in, in the repertoire that I've danced, I've seen, I've kind of peeked into rehearsals, I've seen with the company. Um, and I think for myself, I, I tend to go back to a more traditional um, calling. So f for me, you know, as you were saying about Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, I can remember the first time I saw Fokine's Firebird and I thought it was mesmerizing and when you think of how how old that is and yet still still very relevant and then a huge influence of mine is the works of Kenneth Macmillan mm -hmm. um, mainly because I grew I grew up watching these story ballets and I got so lost in them as a, as a child at school and being able to to go into a theater and even within his abstract works whether there's not necessarily a, a linear narrative be able to go into the theater and get completely transported into it into a different world and he he manages to do that with every single one of his works and that's what I always try and endeavor to do regardless of the the narrative or the or the thematic mm -hmm. aspect of it mm -hmm. thank you yeah I was lucky enough to be in San Francisco Valley in the 70s and lucky enough to be exposed to Maurice Bejar coming in to um, Jerome Robbins coming in. I mean, I was, there was a wealth of that time period that I was heavily influenced by, just the, the, the variety, total variety. However, I think Liam's right, your life experiences influence you so much. I did not start dance until I was 20. I probably tell this story so many times. I said I was 16 when I came here and I got the Ford Foundation Scholarship. But it was like, 
I learned, uh, studied music, I studied theater, I studied English, I studied so much more and, uh, before I came here. And so I think that shaped the way I choreograph than if I'd started dancing when I was seven or eight or nine. So I think that heavily influenced me as well. So I think, again, I agree so much with Liam, your life experiences really tells you where you're going to go with, with your choreography, I believe. Mm. Interesting, thank you. Liam, Hummingbird, which premiered yesterday, is your first ballet, first San Francisco ballet. And I've read in some of your interviews that you tend to work with dancers as co-collaborators in your work. What's it like to come to a company that you don't, where you don't know the dancers as well and begin to create work? And just more generally, if you could speak a bit about your experience of working here. Um, I think any time on day one, it's, it's very hard to walk into a new company and see 20 expectant faces kind of peering back at you and there's one of you at the front and you're pretending like you know what to do. Um, and I, I got asked this question the other day actually and as you were saying, uh, a choreographer isn't like a painter or an author. You rely on a middleman in, in essence to deliver your work to the audience. So my entire trust has to go into these dances. I know by the end of the process I need to believe in them more than I possibly believe in myself for them to deliver exactly what I want or what, what, what I feel that the piece should end up as. So um, it's, it's such a vulnerable art form, I think. You expose yourself a lot and you know, on, on opening nights you're sat in the darkness and no one really knows who you are and it's, it's incredibly honest what you watch up there. So um, when you walk into a new company, it's, I guess it's like going on a, on a first date that you start with just conversation. You have to get to know these people before you, you would even think about asking them to lift someone above their head or anything, anything like that. You have, to, you have to gain these people's trust as, a, as an individual. And that's how I like to work, is nothing's really imposed on them that I kind of premeditate the night before. It's we go in and I work with them and for them and because of them, not just on them. Um, and San Francisco, ballet having so many choreographers come in and so many new works each year have such a receptive intellect because they're so used to the, the like sponges I guess they just absorb everything and the collaborative process was a fantastic one and almost an, a really easy one because it just it went seamless kind of from start to finish and was for me one of the best experiences. Terrific. I'm glad to hear that. Great. Val, um, your ballets are very diverse in range. Um, you have a wide range as a choreographer. And next season, San Francisco Ballet will be doing your ballet, La Morena. And you've stated that this ballet was a kind of turning point for you. Um, could you comment a bit more on how choreographing this ballet changed your approach? Um, yeah. Um... It was one of those, those pieces where I couldn't find the music. I knew I wanted to, a friend of mine said, you need a hit in San Francisco Ballet. You need to use Evelyn Cisneros and, and all men with their shirts off. <laughs> I went, yes, that's what I'll do. But uh, that wasn't my turning point. But uh, uh, got the music maybe a week before I started rehearsals. And the music was so incredible, wonderful. It was a gift to a friend of mine who had a, a wedding in Paris. So this is produced in Paris, the score with Johann Sebastian Bach in African. 
But I thought, how am I going to do this? I don't know African dance. And so I brought in African dance consultants. I love working with uh, uh, bringing in people like a um, ACT, um, Carrie Perloff, for the story ballets and coming in with the dramaturge, coming in with, with, with help, so to speak, uh, and again, collaborating with the dancers and such. But this was a turning point in studying African dance with these amazing uh, Zachary Saudiouf and Naomi Jito Washington from Diam Nukuro across the bay. And it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And I think learning that African dance, and it's going to be 20 years old. I've done this on maybe 20 plus companies have done this ballet. So it made me even learn African dance even more. It's, it's sort of like stuck with a lot of my other choreography. Even my most uh, classical works, it, it just sort of rubbed off on me. So that was the turning point, basically. And just taking chances. This was a huge chance, and it, it paid off. Yes, it did. Miles, um, the bits of your choreography that I've seen on video already show, at least to my eyes, a kind of contemporary ballet sensibility at work. You also seem to be drawn towards more experimental music. Um, could you say more about how you've developed your choreographic language over the years? And also, do you perceive yourself as having a particular style? Um, I think uh, I think that's something I'm still discovering, of course. I think I'm, especially with my work with the school, usually will work over the course of eight months or so um, and have... Um, I never really know how much time I'll actually be able to rehearse with them, but, but I, I try to keep the environment really open and collaborative, and we might spend a day just doing improvisation exercises, or we might spend a day sitting down and talking about the piece, or do it, you know, we've done, I think we've done writing assignments, which I'm sure they hated, but, um, um, so, so I think, I think I, I, I'm, I, from, uh, sorry, <laughs> I use um, that time to kind of discover what I like to say, um, even past the steps, and how I can, um, bring my dancers into that space as well. Um, I think I'm influenced physically by everything from classical tech, sleeping beauty to foresight to hip hop. So uh, I think it's, it's, I'm still kind of honing in on a style, but, but I, don't, I don't think I'll ever really settle on a specific, I think it's good to keep uh, uh, keep an open mind and keep learning from from your dancers. And, sure. Yeah. Writing assignments. Oh, I like. Yeah. That. That's great. It was yeah. fun <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, Liam, you've let me flip back to one of our slides here. Uh, you've created a number of, I would say, more dramatic or perhaps loosely based narrative works, such as. Um, this picture is from your ballet, Sweet Violets, which was based on the story or the lore surrounding Victorian serial killer, Jack the Ripper. Um, and you've also stated that um, Kenneth McMillan is a great influence on you. Do you, it, what are some of the challenges involved in creating a more narrative and dramatic ballet versus, so to speak, um, a, an abstract ballet that doesn't have, say, particular characters that you name? And do you prefer working in one mode over the other? 
I think one, one genre lends itself to the other. Um, I knew that narrative work was something that I really wanted to endeavor to do and end up doing as, you know, as I said, the Royal Ballet has such a heritage of great narrative works and I really wanted to <clears throat> follow in the footsteps of Ashton Macmillan and these, these people that I look up to so much. Um, I knew that before I could ever tackle a, um, a, full, a full narrative work, what I needed to do was generate an emotion from an audience to make them feel something, to make them empathize with what is happening on stage, uh, regardless of the context it's in. If I could make an audience laugh, if I could make an audience cry, if I could make them puzzled by something or feel a certain way from a character. And so I, I remember I created very kind of short snippets of, of pas de deux um, in a very um, episodic kind of fashion that, that it wasn't a narrative, but it was just, it was sketches of emotion that I think is, is essential to, to being able to tell a story. And until I could sit an audience down and maybe have tears streaming down their faces um, in either joy or sadness, then I knew until I'd done that, I wouldn't be ready to, to tell a story because you need to, again, you need to pull people into a world and you need to make them believe like that is the only world that is happening at that moment. Um, and, you know, Macmillan and Ashton do that in my eyes perfectly. Wow, that's intense. Um, Val, well, really all of you, although um, some of you have touched on, on your process, um, but I, I wanted to kind of get at what are the nuts and bolts of how you put work together, because um, I think this is an area that's shrouded in mystery for many people. And I had to share this with you, um, how a very, one very famous choreographer put his works together. This was Marius Petipa, the creator of 19th century ballet classicism, Don Quixote, Sleeping Beauty, etc. He would get a rehearsal score and a violinist and a pianist and shut himself up in his living room with paper mache figures that he manipulated on a diagram, and then he would write the whole thing out. I'm assuming these were for the group dances, because I know he choreographed his variations with his ballerinas, and they had a lot to say about that. Uh, so Val, I imagine you're not off in your living room with paper mache figurines. Uh, how, do you, how do you actually bring a ballet into being? Uh, getting back to what Liam said, the dancers are such the key, the collaborators, and I do the same thing. Um, it's so important working with them in the studio, not coming in with expectations that aren't probably met. You have to like be able to shift and such. There's also uh, shutting yourself off with music. I, like, going back to the uh, uh, teaching choreography, I did uh, reluctantly workshops. One was the Carlisle Project, and I went in because the woman in charge said, you need to work with your score more. You need to find it, the score, and work with that a lot more than you are. And in, within that workshop, and that's what I did, and from learning from that workshop, I spent a year doing bad ballets because I sat and I overdid the score. I studied music, and I'm going, why do I need to do that? I can hear the score. I can hear the layers. So I don't sit in the room and, look, and listen to music over and over and over. I might have an idea of it. I might know where I'm going to go with it, you know, whether it be a, a dramatic piece or an abstract piece. But it's, it's something I don't, I don't like to overthink something. 
because inevitably it doesn't work for me. So really working in the studio, working with those dancers, collaborating, and sometimes they come with much, up, with much better things than what you thought you were going to do. I mean, you really have to be able to turn around and work with them. Um, but yeah, I, I don't overthink it. I think that's, it, it, I, I fail if I do. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Miles, um, you're not only a choreographer, you're also a full-time dancer at San Francisco Ballet. Uh, this is a position that Liam found himself in, at least with the Royal Ballet, not too long ago. Uh, as we know, being a ballet dancer is a lot of work. How do you find time to do your creative work? Um, very fast lunches, really. Um, usually, usually I'm down in the school on my lunch break or... Any, any break I can find that they're free. Um, it's, it's, I think this year I've, I've found my limit of uh, how, how, how much time I can spend working as opposed to just needing rest and, and seeing how it affects um, my performance on the stage. But, uh, but yeah, usually Mondays, Mondays <laughs> and lunch breaks. But um, it, it, it really... I can tell I love it because uh, even if I'm down on my, on my hour break, I, I always come back up to the fourth floor where we rehearse um, with the company feeling rejuvenated. And mm. um, so I think, I think one really feeds into the other for me at this point. Mm -hmm. And um, I learn a lot about dance through coaching on my choreography. And I lot of, learn a lot about choreography through working with choreographers and, and, and discovering movement and refining things in the studio. So I think they're quite complimentary for me. Mm, great, great. Uh, Liam, two of your ballets are about, um, or at least the title uh, indicates that they're about the, the underworld. Uh, could you, <laughs> see, seems to be a, a an, at least in these two, something of interest to you. Would you care to comment on that, uh, um, how that came about? Yeah. I. Uh, a lot of my work has been cited as being slightly on the darker side of um, life, I guess. Um, I'm quite a happy person, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, Acheron, which was created for um, New York City Ballet and Asphodel Meadows, <clears throat> also created for the Royal Ballet, um, both by uh, Poulenc pieces. Oh, okay. um, and so there was, a, there was a slight connection there. Asphodel was the first um, major piece that I did um, and the, the piece that really kind of projected me to where I am today. Um, and again, using the same designers that I'm using for Hummingbird, which is really lovely. We've kind of all come back together to almost where we started. Um, I don't know, did titles, titles, well, Hummingbird as well, it's a bit of an odd one. Um, titles are always hard. I think they set up an expectation for, for something that you haven't even seen yet. You, you pick up a playbill and you see a name and you, you form an expectation in your mind and sometimes when the curtain goes up that isn't met and it's almost an instant fail without you having seen anything. Um, so I like to keep my titles slightly um, ambiguous. A lot of the dancers came up to me and said why, why is it called Hummingbird? Um, and I gave them a sort of a reason, um, but a lot of it's, it's, it's a little bit personal to me, which I think is, you have to keep something back. 
<laughs> Keep a little mystery. Great. Um, I want to make sure we have time for audience questions. So this will be my last question for you all, and it's for each one of you. Um, okay, you are king of the world. Uh, you have unlimited time, unlimited resources, unlimited access to whatever art, music, dancers, anything that you need. Uh, what would be a dream choreographic project for you? What would you most like to create? Wow. Um, I don't know if a lot of people realize in the, in the ballet world, we're expected to do genius work on such a short amount of time. And I've learned working now with theater companies, I never knew the term previews before or taking something on the road and trying it out before it's a finished product. To me, that would be ideal. I think works in the ballet world are shot down so quickly before they're ready because of the criticism and the expectations are ludicrous. That uh, I think the best thing is for me to have that opportunity to, to have enough time to do the work, to present it in oh, two weeks of previews. I, I didn't know what that was. It was crazy. Um, film has that. Movies, they, they preview before they edit before the public, before they bring it to the, the press and such, or an audience. So to me, that would be the dream, is to have, or if we, we work in the way we work, that it's, going, it's uh, going to be toured, it's going to be put in, brought in by other companies, so you have a chance to work with it, and fix, and tweak, and work it. Even Balanchine, up until his death, worked on his, his major works, from Aegon to prodigal son to all of them, he still tweaked those works. He was still working on them. But again, the ideal world is to have those previews, to have, be able to work on your, on your creations for a longer period of time. All right. Just following from what Val said, I think the pressure of, on a choreographer to create um, an instant classic is, is ludicrous. Um, <clears throat> people are so focused on next day reviews now. Um, and it sometimes becomes, I hope there's no critics out there, a circus um, of horrendous matter. It's, it's, it's terrible when they take something that you've given your heart and your soul and everything and you, you pour it into and someone can crush it in a second. So I think the idea of, you know, time and previews and a classic takes time to mature and be appreciated and respected by generations and audiences, to be danced by different dancers, to be able to give it a life after its premiere. And trust has to be involved in that. And time. And in the ballet world, time is limited. <laughs> and money. And, you know, a dancer's life is short. And I think to give them the, the long, kind of fruitful careers that they deserve, that the pieces that are being created nowadays shouldn't just be superficial and one-hit wonders. They need to be of substance. Um, I think both as a dancer and choreographer, and I'm sure they would agree, 90% of our time is... is invested in the process of a, of a work. Opening night happens after 
a lot of thought and hard work and effort. Um, and I think, for me, the, the most beautiful part is the process and, and really um, growing with either your dancers or your choreographer and, and learning about this art form and, and humans and emotion and um, structure and steps. And I think sometimes that can, that can uh, when we don't have enough time, it's almost, it's, it's almost a shame that we can't get to the meat of, mm. of um, this art form because uh, I think that's where the most interesting part is. I, I think it's a, a bit past the steps and, and um, the illusion and, and it's a bit more, more of the, the heart. So I think, I think spending, spending time, you know, water has, will only boil in a certain amount of time. You can't speed that up. So it's, it, for me, for me, time for process, yeah. Okay, previews and more time. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll, let's do it. we'll notify the committee. <laughs> uh, let's take our first audience question. I know you have them. Yes. That would be great if you could use the microphone, please. Could you pull it down just a bit? Thank you. Thank you. I've always wondered, how do you decide how many dancers to use in all the different groups within a modern ballet? Are you told from on, on high you need to um, prepare something for the entire um, company or do you prepare something for six dancers or 20 dancers? Uh, I was wondering, do you have a, um, steps in mind and a, and a ballet in mind before you get the music or does someone say, here's some music that we want to put a, a story to and steps to? Thank you. Val? Um, uh, those are all good questions. He, when an artistic director asks for a work, the first thing I uh, usually I ask, do you want a beginning, a middle, or an end? Um, how, do you want it a full company piece? Uh, do you want a story ballet? Do you want abstract? Do you want, I always ask those questions. Or if it's a third of an evening, what is the other music on that program? So you want to pick music that complements or maybe works against it. Um, but the, the, the dancer count, I think we all agree that it's, it just depends on maybe the time you have. If the director says you only have a week, and so then you go, well, I'm going to use two or three dancers. Or you have a month or time period, oh, okay, I'll use the whole company. But I also like um, a challenge where a director will go, like in Royal Winnipeg Ballet, I was asked, uh, will you do a full-length Cinderella? I went, well, sure. He says, however, it can't be Prokofiev. So I went, I love that challenge. So it's sometimes given a challenge. Just it says how many dancers are what you're going to do. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, we have season tickets, and we sit on the waist, on the very edge of the sides. And so much of the time, we can't see the action, like the windmill and Don Quixote's in the back corner, or even Cinderella, the coach, is 
upstage um, so far that the last three or four seats can't see it. Do you ever, when you choreograph and you get it on stage, do you ever sit on the way sides so you can tell what people see and can't see? I guess they will now. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I was just teching for Hummingbird last, last week before the opening, and uh, due to the, the nature of my set, um, sight lines are always very important, I think. Um, so I did spend most of my time wandering around, um, much to the annoyance of all my designers, because they could never find me, or I was a voice up there occasionally. Um, I think it's important to check, um, you know, but the, the wonderful thing about live theater is that it's not a flat screen TV. Um, and that there's always going to be something you miss, but then the beauty of it is that there's something that you're going to see that maybe other people don't, or that you can come back the next night and get a different seat and see it from a different <laughs> angle. And the wonderful thing is it's live and it will be a totally different experience or a totally different cast, and it will enthrall you again and again and again in a different way. But uh, also on that note, the, the works that we do, and if they are lucky to be toured or go from theater to the theater, you don't know the sight lines of all the potential theaters you're going to be in. I mean, you can design it for this stage, if it's designed for the stage, but sometimes you don't have the depth or the width in another theater. So it, it's sometimes you can work as much as you can uh, in this theater, and it all works. But the sight lines in another theater may not be the same. So it, it does change. And I agree, you'll see something that maybe the middle section won't see, you know. But I mean, there's something to that. Yes. Hi. Um, when you do a ballet like Giselle or uh, Don Quixote, where you have five different casts, does the, one of the ballerinas ever come to you and say, I don't want to dance with him? I want to dance with him. Does that ever happen? And and who do, and the the uh, does the director say this is the way it is? Um, I think personalities are a big part of our job. I mean, we're we're in this theater 13 hours a day all together. Um, working in very close proximity, partnering together, and, and th that's kind of the beauty of it because you'll work with one partner and, and, and maybe everything works and you don't have to communicate and, and an another, maybe you're just not quite made for each other. So um, I think, I think um, directors uh, familiarize themselves with who works well together um, height-wise and, and proportion-wise, but also personality-wise, and um, it's, a, it's a very important dynamic, the one of your partner. <laughs> and it does happen more than you think, yes. <laughs> um, and I wish Helgi was here to be able to answer that, but a, a director is, you know, he's a psychiatrist too, he's your, your, he's your father, he's your family, he's, he, I, I don't know how, I would never want to be an artistic director, I don't know how they do it, but your, your life is the life of the dancers, and that Stuff like that comes up quite often, and it's up to that director to either diffuse it or work around it or maybe change it, but yes. All right. We have time for one more, and then we will need to wrap up.
Um, this is kind of a simple question, but where do you find your music? Um, <clears throat> I think, well, maybe. I think most choreographers kind of listen subconsciously all the time. Whether you're in a store, maybe something's playing in the background, or something on television, and there's some, an ad, and it's, it's making a, a kind of a catalog of like a to-do list, basically, in some old notebook, so that when an opportunity arises or a commission comes up, you have kind of potential part of des, potential big pieces, maybe story values. And then from there, it's, it's kind of using that as an epicenter and then dissipating out so you can find a composer that you like. Maybe you've heard one thing, and then it's going through a catalog of that. And maybe that leads you on to somewhere else. But it's, I think it's really just you keep your ears open uh, like 110% of the time. And, it's, it's a to-do list, really, and I think all choreographers are slowly working their way through the to-do list and adding to it every day. I feel lucky that um, there's a, a large online database for music, and, and I can't imagine, uh, I, I know Val has an extensive CD collection <laughs> that, that was I've back when that. the internet wasn't around, so I've got this gigantic mm -hmm. CD collection. It was like... Oh my gosh, but it, it's true, you collect and you, you, you make lists and then sometimes something will pop up that you go, well, I, oh, case in point with um, the Joffrey, I was supposed to do a, a new creation, I was going to do Bartok, but all of a sudden Bartok, you can't use Bartok if it wasn't meant to be for dance anymore, or the, the estate says you can't use it in a film if it wasn't composed for film, and I was stuck. So I went to my collection, desperate, going, oh my gosh, I gotta find something. I pulled something out, and I went, I've never seen this before. It was one of those things, and it was the best music. It was the best mistake I've ever made. So in my collection, I found this seat that wasn't even open. I didn't even heard of the composer before, Rabinovich. <laughs> and it, it worked out so well, so you just never know. You never know where you'll hear that or find that music. Great. Well, please join me in thanking our guests tonight for a great conversation. Thank you.